I, I have some introductory remarks that I want to make here as we begin this, uh, this topic, um, just to kind of set the tone for the class and let you know what, uh, what to expect. This class is going to be a little bit more in, informal than the previous uh, class that I taught on systematic theology. Um, I want you to be sure to bring your Bibles. I want you to be, uh, whether it's an electronic version or like me, uh, the old um, book version, but uh, bring your Bibles. And uh, I have some handouts that you should have picked up. Hope everybody got one that was on the chairs in the back. Uh, bring those with you, if you will, each week. I'll maybe add to those, but the one handout, which is a kind of chart, I want to fill that in as we go along week by week. So if you would please bring those back with you each week. I'll try to have some here if you forget, but do, if you will, um, bring that back. <clears throat> I don't want to go through this class in a hurried pace. Uh, I'll ask questions of you and get your feedback, and I want you to participate. Please feel free to do so, and don't don't hesitate. And if you have questions, please feel free to ask questions. There are no dumb questions, as you know, teachers often say. There are no dumb questions. And there might be some dumb answers. There won't be any dumb questions, okay? So <clears throat> please uh, feel free to, to do that. And then also, this is an adult Sunday school class. School class. What do you do in school? <laughs> you learn, right? So um, I anticipate that there will be some learning going on here, and uh, there will be, in a sense, some study, and I would encourage you to take with you the passages of Scripture and, and information that we will cover in this class. Go home and study it. I want What I want to happen in this class is I want baptism to not just be something that you've heard about, but I want what the Scriptures teach about baptism to be something that you own because you have seen it in the scriptures yourself. That's my goal. Now, I don't claim to be the most um, intelligent person in the area of baptism. In fact, I don't claim to be the most intelligent person in any area. <laughs> um, however, what I do is I learn from smart people. And so uh, a lot of the material that we're going to be covering, I freely acknowledge is, uh, is material that I have learned and gleaned from others who are much smarter than I am. And uh, so I want to give credit to, uh, to many godly saints who have gone before and who have studied many of these areas uh, and have um, helped by systematizing, by putting the, the scriptural teaching in books and in other formats. Um, now, in spite of the fact that there are some very um, intelligent people on both sides of the issue, whether, when I say both sides of the issue, I'm presenting a Baptist perspective, not a pedo-Baptist perspective. Pedo comes from two words, meaning child and in baptism, which I think is actually a misnomer, but anyway. Um, there are smart people on both sides. They're highly intelligent people on both sides. And in fact, if you just go to the Pado-Baptist side, they're highly intelligent people who differ among themselves with regard to an understanding of, of Pado-Baptism. So we got some really smart people on both sides. So it's not going to be a matter of uh, you know, who, who is the smartest. 
And uh, it's not going to be a matter of who can come up with the most uh, complicated uh, set of arguments. It's not going to be a matter of who's written the most books. It's not going to be a matter of what, uh, what has transpired in church history, although um, we will look at that later in, the, in this course. But that is not going to be what determines what we believe about the subject of baptism. All right. Elementary question. What is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice? God's word. God's word. That's right. The word of God. Now, what are the scriptures? What, what does our, we have a confession of faith, the 1689 confession. What does that tell us? Well, in chapter one of the London Confession or the 1689 Confession, chapter one, paragraph 10, it says this, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits, you know, some kind of private revelation that you think you might have gotten, are to be examined and in those and in are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the holy scripture delivered by the spirit into which scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved now that's kind of a long and older way of saying um, something that we just said in a simpler way and that is the final determiner in all matters of faith and practice is the Holy Scriptures, the supreme judge. And I want you to notice, by which all controversies, including the controversy of baptism, and it is a controversy, um, but all controversies are to be determined and all decrees of councils. Do we appreciate what we have learned by the decrees of councils? Of course we do. What about the opinions of ancient writers? Yes, we, we want to know what they say. We want to take into account what they say. In doctrines of men, what about the writings of men, even contemporary men? And it's, yeah, it's good to know what those are. Private spirits. Well, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> um, I don't know if anybody has a, a private spirit giving you some uh, revelation. But all of those to be examined, and they'll be examined in the light of the word of God. And so our confession says it's the Holy Scriptures delivered, inspired by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. You want to resolve controversy, what you believe in a controversy, you go to the Word of God, ultimately. Now, that is from a Baptist perspective. You know what? Pado-Baptists say the same thing. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a Pado-Baptist document, <clears throat> says this. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion and by the way everything here that is not underlined is identical in these two statements the only thing that differs is where we see underlining and so the, the westminster confession says that uh, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils opinions of ancient writers doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but and they phrase it just a little bit different. The Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Well, that's just saying the same thing that we just read in the London Confession. <clears throat> we believe that the Holy Spirit has inspired the word. And so it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the word. But they're saying the same thing. 
And so they're paedo-baptists on, on the other side, you know, who, who take a different position, and they agree with us in this particular area, and that is <clears throat> that it's the scriptures that are the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And I want to underscore that because <clears throat> I find so often that what I'm going to call theological argumentation and logic, which in my opinion sometimes becomes illogical, takes precedence over the scriptures. Okay, so we don't want to do that. Um, most of you know that I graduated from a Presbyterian seminary that adheres to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, <clears throat> most of you know that um, I have a great respect for many of uh, our Reformed Pado-Baptist brothers. Just think of, oh, John Murray, one of the best books in my library is written by John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, think of J.I. Packer, he's a Pado-Baptist. Think of R.C. Sproul. These are godly men who, who seek to be faithful to the word of God. But there are many other godly men on the other side who are just as brilliant, just as smart on the Baptist side who differ, differ with them, who disagree. And so I'm not here to uh, attack Pado-Baptist brethren. I love them. I appreciate them. Um, I am not here to try to demean them, but I am here to try to understand what the scriptures say and if it happens to differ from my Pado-Baptist brethren, then the scriptures are final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Okay, so now, um, <clears throat> what, uh, what about the mode of baptism? There are three modes in front of you. Immersion, sprinkling, and pouring. I don't intend to say a whole lot about the mode other than what I will say today and other than what will come up in the process of our looking at various passages of Scripture. In other words, I don't intend to take a particular week and focus a whole week on the subject of the mode of baptism. I think it's going to become <clears throat> pretty obvious as we look at various passages of Scripture and go through these things. But um, there is, uh, what, what I want to do be, to begin with, though, is um, I want to talk a little bit about the word baptism. Now, how many of you know what the difference is between a translation and a transliteration? What's the difference between a translation and a transliteration? Yes, Jason. Transliteration is going to take the letters from the original language and basically transpose them into the letters of the language you're looking at. And translation is going to find a word in the language you're translating to that's a equivalent of the meaning of the first language. Excellent. Great. That's that it. That's it. Transliteration, kind of letter for letter. Translation, the meaning in the target language. <clears throat> so, what about, uh, let, me, let me just give you some examples. You know the word deacon is a transliteration? 
It comes from the Greek diakonos. The I gets translated into an E, but basically you can see the same letters there. What about uh, evangelize? What does it mean to evangelize? It comes from euangelizo, and you can see the letters in euangelizo, a U becomes a V in English. <clears throat> you can see those letters are transported or transferred into the letters of the target language. You know, there's some minor changes that take place, like there's only one G, for example, in the English version. But you can see pretty easily there. Well, when we ask the question, <clears throat> what does deacon mean, what do you say? What does deacon mean? Servant. Servant. So you want to know the meaning of the word deacon? It's not a transliteration. It's looking at the meaning of the word in the original language and finding an equivalent meaning in the target language. What about evangelize? What does it mean to evangelize? Proclaim. Okay, proclaim good news. Okay. What does euangelizo what does mean in the original Greek? It means declaring, proclaiming glad tidings or good news. So if we want to know what the word evangelize means in English... We look at the meaning in the original target language. Same thing, look at the word apostle. You can see how the letters are transliterated into the English. Also, Sabbath. What does Sabbath mean? What does apostle, what does apostle mean, by the way? What was that? Okay, the word apostle means sent one. Somebody who's been sent. You want to know what an apostle is? You get the translation, not the transliteration. Now, what about Sabbath? What does Sabbath mean? It comes from the Hebrew, Shabbat, and then into the Greek, Sabaoth or Sabbaton. What, is, what does that mean, the root mean? Seven. Rest. Rest. Rest or to cease, to stop. It's a day in which we cease from our normal activities, we rest in the Lord spiritually, and we rest in our worship. So, my point is, <clears throat> we have Greek words that are transliterated sometimes into the English, into our, into our English Bibles. That is the truth, that is the case with regard to the word baptism. <clears throat> baptism is not a translation it is a transliteration. What does the word baptizo mean? When we say somebody was baptized, well, we need to, if we're going to understand what that means, we have to understand what the original language translation is. Baptizo means, means to dip, to immerse, to sink, plunge, could be, like a, a ship sinking down in the ocean. It's been sunk. Plunge, you can plunge a cup into a, some water to, um, you know, to wash it, to, to bathe, um, to wash oneself, to perform ablutions, which is a, which is a, time of, a type of um, washing, ceremonial washing. That's what baptizo means. What about, there's five words that are used in the New Testament, by the way, that have this B-A-P-T, a baptism root. The second word, 
Bapto means to dip or to dip in something, to sink, to immerse. So it can be used of like dipping uh, um, clothing into a dye. So you dye the clothing. What about <clears throat> baptisma? That means immersion. And it usually has reference to the, the result of the act of immersion or dipping, could be translated dipping. What about baptismas? Again, means dipping or washing. And this usually refers to the act itself. And then the last word that is used in the New Testament is baptistes, which is the surname of John the Baptist. And it could be translated one that dips. Now, what's the point of all this? The point of all this is simply this. And when you look at the word baptism in the New Testament, it's not a translation. It's a transliteration. If you want to know what it means, you've got to go back to what the meaning of the original language was and find the equivalent in the target language. And these are, these are the equivalents that I'm giving you that appear in all the Greek lexicons, even those that are written by those that are not conservative or believers. Now, what does that tell you about what the word baptism means? What does that tell you about the mode of baptism? If the Bible, if the writers of the New Testament wanted to say that when the rite of baptism occurs, <laughs> um, it's by means of sprinkling, they could have done so, or by means of pouring, they could have done so. There are two very perfectly good words in the Greek language that mean sprinkling and mean pouring. If they, if they intended for it to be, if they intended for babies, or anybody else for that matter, to be sprinkled, there was a perfectly good use, word to use for it. Prontizo. Why didn't they use that? If they wanted to pour, why didn't they say ekeko? There's a perfectly good word for that. They didn't use those words. If they wanted to use those words, they could have. The New Testament uses those words. But it doesn't use it with regard to this rite that we call baptism. And I think that if our translations of the Bible had done something other than transliterate, it might have removed some of the controversy with regard to the mode of baptism. Just my thought, my thinking on this. If we translated it rather than transliterated it, it might give us some insight with regard to the mode of baptism. So, what about the mode of baptism? Which of these modes best fits the meaning of the word baptized? You tell me. Yeah. What do you? Yeah, that's a question. I, this is what I was going to get to. I was going to ask you, but, you know, if you could, if you could summarize in the word baptism in a single word of the words we just saw, what would it be? We're kind of getting to. Yeah. Uh, if we're getting out of that now. So I, I would say dip or immerse. Yeah. yeah. Now there are John. Do you know what the Vulgate used? No, I don't. In Latin. 
Mm-mm. There we go. I'll look it up. Okay. <laughs> I do. I do know that in the Septuagint. <clears throat> um, let's see here. If you go back to the first word there, baptizo, um, the Greek word baptizo, that that word is used twice in the Septuagint. It's used once with regard to Naaman. Naaman went down to the river, and what did the prophet tell him to do? He was going to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River, right? He, he said, Naaman, I want you to go down there and sprinkle yourself seven times. Know what he did? No. He didn't go down and sprinkle himself seven times. He dipped himself. Or it's used also metaphorically in Isaiah 21.4, where it says, horror overwhelms me. In the Septuagint, it would be horror overwhelms me, um, horror baptizes me. Now, do you think that the writer there was, when he was talking about the horror of, the, of what was going to happen with regard to the people of God being just completely overrun by uh, the Babylonians and others, <clears throat> do you think that it was a good translation to say, horror sprinkled me? <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. They use the word baptize because it means overflowing, flooding, immersing. I'm immersed in horror. So, um, you tell me which of these modes fits the meaning of the word itself. Yes. So we've established that there are very smart people who are paleobaptists. So we have to assume that they also are aware of these original meanings, uh, the original language. So understanding their perspective, trying to steal man their argument, what would they say in response to what you're saying? Okay. Well, um, by the way, even John Calvin, in his commentary on the book of John, admits that baptism is by immersion. So, um, what I think happens is they will find some word, some usages of the word that are in a, a kind of little bit of an exception, you might say, um, or a use that is outside the normal realm of the usage of that word. Because all words have what they call a field of meaning. And there are some that are more central to the meaning of the word and some that are more peripheral. And, uh, and so what they'll do is they'll, they'll often find a, uh, a passage where something's a little bit more peripheral, can't be, you, you couldn't actually say, well, that was really an immersion, though. Um, <clears throat> it wouldn't fit that particular context, and yet the word baptized was used. So they'll find some of these exceptions, and they'll build their doctrine on the exception. But I think it's more than that. I think it's not so much the fact that there are some exceptions, but I think it has to do with the fact that they need to find something to justify what they're going to do with infants. And so they look for these kind of exceptions. That's my judgment. Wouldn't a lot of that talk come out of the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah, and uh, and by the way, and um, well, we'll we'll talk about that in the future. But yes, there's some some corresponding score correspondence to the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, Jason and Donna. My understanding is that the Greek Orthodox Church. While Pado Baptists, they take their babies and they put them under the basin three times. Being Greek Orthodox, they know what 
that could go means, even though they're tying it to the wrong candidate. Yeah. And it's possible to certainly immerse an infant. My little grandson loves, when he was little, very little, before, long before he ever walked, when he was just a little baby, he loved his baths. And he'd be pretty much immersed, except for maybe his head. And he loved being in the pool. And it wouldn't be, you could just come, come down real easy. You could, you could. Yeah. Okay, I think it was another question with Donna. When I looked it up, it said, in the last centuries of the Old Testament era, the Greek word that teaches my thing right did mean to immerse. But the time of the new, by the time the New Testament was written, the word described the application of water. It included immersing, washing, and pouring. Okay. Well, we will, we will uh, test that as we go through the scriptures and find out do we find, um, what do we find that the New Testament, how do we find the New Testament using that term, baptizo? And I don't, what's, what's the source of that? Google. Google, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, that settles it. <clears throat> but I'm giving you, what I'm giving you here, what I give you here is what all the standard Greek lexicons for New Testament Greek give you. I'm, this is not something I'm making up. These, I pulled these right out of the, you know, Arden Gingrich, Abbott Smith, Liddell and Scott, Thayer. Yes. In modern times, you have colloquialisms that change the meanings of words. Was that an issue back in the Old Testament times? Localized language having different meanings? You mean, in other words, can a word kind of evolve a little bit and, and change its meaning over time? Yeah, it can. That can happen. It does happen. Does that affect any of the primary proper languages of the day? Um, well, are you asking if it affects our translation of, of those passages, of, of these that words? We have transliterations as opposed to direct translation, but did that affect you? Was that something that really pretty cut dry on the language as such at the time? Um, well, I would say that you know what the, the meanings of those terms is pretty pretty cut and dry, you know. Um, yeah, it's like it's like any any other word. You can there are metaphorical usages. There are uh, varieties of ways in which something is used. Like you can say that you wash the dishes. You know, you could use and the word baptize would be used. Like I think it's in Mark chapter seven. Um, it talks about various things that are being washed. You know, and the word baptize is used. So, um, but the, the root idea behind it is to immerse or to dip, just like when you wash your dishes, you pretty much dip them in water. Like today, something's bad, you know, I don't think bad Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, Jason? Wycliffe was doing his English translation well into the, what, 1500s? The practice of sprinkling was so well established by that point. So it's not like you transliterated into English in the year 90 AD. It was 1,500 years later. So the practice was established and it was a justification to transliterate it instead of translating. Mm -hmm. And I'll keep my hands to myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, good. Those are good comments.
So, um, let's go on then and uh, just to kind of let you know where we're headed with this. What is baptism? Uh, I will be hopefully showing this from the scriptures as we go through uh, this class. But let's just take what the London Confession of Faith says in chapter 29, paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to those baptized, to those baptized. It is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And if you are baptized, that's what your baptism means. And that's where we're headed. We're going to be hopefully demonstrating this as we go through the class. And then another key issue is, has already been mentioned, and that is who are the proper subjects of baptism? Well, the London Confession says this, those who personally profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So that's what we hold to as Baptists, and um, that's where we're headed in this class. Now, um, any, any other quick comments or questions before I move to beyond the preliminary comments to discussing um, the baptism of John the Baptist? Okay, well, <coughs> did you know that Abraham was not baptized? Joseph was not baptized. Moses was not baptized. David was not baptized. Daniel was not baptized. Millions of Israelites were never baptized. However, the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. The Philippian jailer was baptized. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, he was baptized. About 3,000 Jews were baptized all at the time, at the, on the day of Pentecost. And you have witnessed many baptisms, have you not? And you yourself, many of you, most of you, maybe all of you, have in fact been baptized. Baptism was not always the practice of the people of God. It did not become a practice until Jesus came. It is a specifically New Testament ordinance that we have observed many times, but how many of us really have thought through and understand how the practice of baptism actually got started? It is generally true that to really understand the practice, any sort of practice, it's helpful to understand how it got started, don't you think? Well, today we're going to briefly start to look at how baptism got started in the Christian church, and it begins with John the Baptist. Now, I'm not going to say that John the Baptist's baptism was Christian baptism. I'm not saying that, but it is the forerunner to, and it is tied to, Christian baptism, and we will see that as we go through this. But let's look at John the Baptist and what his ministry was. What was his role? Who was John the Baptist? What do you know about John the Baptist? He was the forerunner of Christ. 
Okay, he's a forerunner of Christ. What, what, is, what does that mean to be a forerunner? What does a forerunner do? Prepares the way. Prepares the way for Christ. What else do we know about John the Baptist? Was that? Yeah, okay, he's his cousin. What else? He was humble. Yeah, he was humble. He was set apart. He was set apart, yes, he was. He baptized Jesus. What was that? He baptized Jesus. He baptized Jesus. Where was John historically? The wilderness. Okay, it was in the wilderness, but in terms of the history of redemption, where was he? What was his place in the history of redemption? Yes. He stands in the transitional at the transitional point between Old Testament and New Testament times. He was was John was was he a prophet? He was a prophet. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He stood at the transition point between Old Testament to New Testament. If you could draw a line between Old Testament and New Testament, he's standing right there at that line. He's on the Old Testament side, but he's right there at the line. He's looking into New Testament times because Jesus starts New Testament times and he's there to announce the coming of the Messiah. He's there to prepare Israel for the Messiah who is to come. And so he stands as the last Old Testament prophet to say, get ready, the Messiah is coming. In fact, he's here. And so he stands at a pivotal point in the history of redemption to announce, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And his baptism does that as part of his ministry. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 3, verses, well, we'll we'll look at the first few words here, verses here. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, this is what he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, this is an Isaiah, how many knows what what chapter of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 40, okay. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 40, kind of a transition point or a key transition point in the book of Isaiah. Um, So in the book of Isaiah, the, the prophet writes this, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's just identified here as a voice. The voice of one um, crying in the wilderness. And what, what, is, what does this voice come to do? What's it, what, what is he crying? Prepare. Get ready. Prepare. John's ministry, and if you've got your chart outline, John's ministry is one of preparation. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a, um, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And, you know, he, he dressed a little bit odd, kind of like one of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah. Uh, then, <clears throat> then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the 
region around Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. So John the Baptist comes along and his, mo- his goal, his mission, according to Isaiah, is one of preparation. Preparation for whom? For the Messiah. Well, <clears throat> what is, what is um, the one word in, 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 in preparing for the Messiah? He baptizes people. So that this baptism is part of his preparation of the people for the Messiah, for receiving the Messiah. They need to have their hearts prepared. They need to have their hearts ready to receive the Messiah. And how does that happen? Well, it happens by means of his baptism. But what is his baptism? What is the key element in John the Baptist's baptism? Okay, look at Luke. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. They went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of what? Of repentance. That's what John's baptism was. If there are one word to describe the baptism of John, I would say it would be the word repentance. The the word repentance. And so John comes on the scene Declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king is at hand. The king is coming, and the king is bringing the kingdom. And so repent. Repent of your sins. And so his baptism is a baptism of repentance, declaring to the people that they need to repent. And then Luke goes on and says the same thing. He quotes even more at length the... Uh, the, the quote from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what John is doing. That's his mission. His goal is to prepare the way of the Lord. What does Jesus come and what does Jesus rep- uh, preach when he comes on the scene? Turn with me, and I don't have this on overhead, but look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. I think, let me go back there. Matthew, uh, no, Matthew 4. In verse 17. Somebody read that for me. Hmm, Does that sound familiar? What did John the Baptist preach? Same thing. Same message. Message of repentance. John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Messiah. The Messiah comes preaching the same message as John the Baptist. Is there kind of a connection here, you think? Yeah. So, what is, what is John to do? What does John expect of the people? Well, he expects them to repent. And they're not going to get baptized if they don't repent. And what, is that, what does that repentance include? What does that repentance include? Well, look with me at Matthew, the the passage right in front of you. What does it include? Confessing your sin and bearing fruit. Exactly. Confessing your sin and bearing fruit. Did he allow somebody who did not confess their sin and bear good fruit to be baptized? No, he didn't. Did he baptize anybody who just by virtue of their being an Israelite, came along and said, I'm an Israelite. I'm a child of Abraham. You ought to baptize me. Did he? 
I've been circumcised. No. You have to confess your sins. <laughs> look, look at, yeah, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Ab- from Abraham. If you want to be baptized by me, you're going to have to repent. You're going to have to confess your sins. You're going to have to start bearing fruit of repentance. And, the, and Luke records the same thing. Look at verse 7 verse, of Luke. But he said, therefore, to the crowds. Now, this is not, Luke doesn't say he said it to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says this to the whole, all the crowds. Now, it might have been focused on the Pharisees and Sadducees. But he says this to the whole, all the crowd. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John comes along and he baptizes people, but he doesn't baptize them unless they are repenting of their sins, which includes confessing their sins and bearing fruit. What is that fruit going to look like? Well, if you look with me at Luke, at Luke's gospel, go to Luke's gospel, chapter 3, and look at verse 10. So he tells them, repent. Verse 10, somebody read verse 10 for me, Luke 3.10. And keep reading verses 12 and 13. And fourteen. So is it, he? He's saying, okay, confess your sins, but also I want you to bear fruit. And the people say, well, what do we? What should we do? What does that look like? Well, share with others. You know, share your food to them. If you're, if you're a tax collector, don't collect more. Don't extort out of people money that you, you should not rightfully collect. Only collect what you are rightful, what is rightful to collect. If you're a soldier, don't take advantage of people because you're a soldier. Be content with your wages. Bear good fruit. This is what it's going to look like for you, John is telling them. So the baptism of John is one that says, okay, <clears throat> are you confessing your sins? Oh, no. The Pharisees, did they confess their sins? And Sadducees, they, were they confessing their sins? Oh, I'm a sinner. No, they stood in the temple and said, I thank you that I'm not like other men, sinners like this publican, this tax collector. No. Were they bearing fruit? No, they were taking advantage of people. Well, the word Corbin comes to mind. And John is saying, if you want to be baptized by me, you have to repent of your sins, you have to confess your sins, 
you have to start uh, putting into practice this repentance by bearing good fruit. And um, our time is up. We'll look at this more next next week. But um, it also, we we will learn, it also includes faith in the Messiah. According to Acts chapter 19, Paul said that he taught them not only to to, uh, repent of their sins, but to believe in the one who was to come. And so it includes repentance and faith. So grasp this, the John's baptism, yes, it's not full-blown Christian baptism, but John's baptism is to be administered to those and those only who have repented, and therefore his baptism is called by the scriptures themselves in one word, a baptism of repentance. Okay, and you know what, folks? When you were baptized, did you not? Was that not the heart, your heart? Were you not repenting of your sins? Were you not turning away from your sins? Were you not saying in your heart, Lord, what, what would you have me to do? Just like the tax collectors. Was that not you? You said, Lord, this is the way I've been living, but now I want to please you. And in my baptism, my baptism is, is declaring that I want to please you now. I want to, I, I confess my sins. I'm turning away from my sins. My baptism is telling me that I now want to please God and do what he asked me to do and no longer serve myself. Is that not what was happening in your own baptism? I know it was. Okay. Let us uh, quickly close in prayer. Father, Please teach us from your word. Make it clear to us. May our hearts be submissive to it. And oh, Lord God, thank you that Jesus has come. That we stand on the other side of the line from John the Baptist. He's come. And so you tell us the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, even though he was the greatest Old Testament prophet because of his place in the history of redemption. Thank you, Lord God, for what you've done through Christ. Bless our worship now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.